Welcome to Metro Health's Prescription for Hope. I'm John Campanelli. Alan Neville is Metro Health's HR chief. Throughout the COVID crisis, he and his team have done extraordinary work, helping roughly a thousand staff members as they shifted to work at home, supporting thousands more frontline workers through the logistical and emotional struggles of the coronavirus crisis, and all the while continuing the never-ending, but now virtual, HR tasks of interviewing, recruiting, onboarding, exiting, training, orientation, and more. But Alan was just warming up. He's also Metro Health's chief diversity officer. In the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd, the uprising and monumental social shifts that followed, Alan is leading Metro Health's efforts to prove that yes, this time is different. He came down to the studio recently to talk all about it. to introduce yourself. Okay. Um, I'm Alan Neville, Senior Vice President, Chief Diversity and Human Resources Officer for the Metro Health System. So, you know, we started the second season of this podcast to focus on COVID and the coronavirus. And I can't believe that three and a half, four months in, I'm having the head of HR here. And we're only going to talk a little bit about it because I want to talk about (laughs) the other gigantic issue. Uh, So real quick, if you could tell me how did you first hear about coronavirus? And when you have an HR department and you have 8,000 employees and you have to get 1,000 people to work from home and you have to care for, how did how did you do it? It's all because of our team. Um, it was an all hands on deck moment and everybody stepped up. Uh, it was amazing because we were at the point where we thought we were gonna have to stand up a internal daycare facility and uh, we were able to uh, pretty much get everything ready to, to pull the switch mm-hmm. if we had to within about 72 hours. And uh, it, that was amazing. You know, I think it's hats off to this organization because from a leadership perspective, um, we didn't panic. Cooler heads prevail. Let's figure out exactly what we need to do to, to number one, protect our employees protect our patients and protect the community. So as you can see, everything that's happened since then, um, we've been able to manage that curve, uh, both from a people process technology, et cetera, uh, when a lot of other healthcare systems haven't been able to. Um, We've been able to really keep everybody together and to the point around having to to send about a thousand people uh, immediately to work from home, uh, that in itself was a massive change uh, massive paradigm shift for people. Uh, some folks, myself included, having been a consultant, you know, I'm used to working from home if need be. But other folks, um, you never really understand how impactful that can be because for many people, this is their family. They spend more time at work with their with their colleagues than they do with their friends, family, and loved ones. And you also, I know we have an employee assistance program, but we yes. also, from what I understand turn that up to 11 in terms of helping everybody deal with everything. Absolutely. Realizing that for many of our uh, employees, they may have spouse, significant other, or partner who became unemployed due to COVID. So so understanding that we needed to support them. We also have folks uh, within within our workforce who are caring for loved ones, caring for older loved ones who are highly susceptible to the disease. So you think about just all of that weighing on your heart and on your mind every day, and you're still expected to come in and perform at your best. 
we developed an all-in care plan. We were able to bring EAP, um, our Trauma Institute, uh, our colleagues from Patient Experience, from Metro Healthy, as well as HR professionals all together to really focus on how can we make this a manageable um, set of circumstances right now. So anything from, from meals, so, you know, we had a number of organizations that donated free food, you know, snacks, any type of recognition, even having musicians playing. So, so really trying to uh, lessen the, the stress in any way possible uh, in order to make it uh, a better environment for our folks. So we were really, really focused on that. When did you first see the George Floyd video? Um, well, actually, we got to go back a little bit before okay, then, yeah, yeah. because, um, you know, for me, uh, being a inclusion, diversity and equity practitioner, um, there were there were uh, earthquakes along the way prior to this. And for me, from a personal perspective, I have two sons, one who just turned 27. And I also have a 16 year old. And I have four grandsons, uh, the oldest being five and a half, the youngest being 18 months. And, you know, every time I see a person who looks like me die, be it due to due to violence, due to, um, you know, police brutality or what have you, um, it has a definite impact on me. Um, I've been blessed to live, you know, more than 50 years. I've seen over 50 countries. But when I think about my kids and my grandkids, they really haven't had a chance to live yet. So it definitely has a personal impact on me. And I have to be honest, I went through my moment. I went through about a week and a half where um, I wasn't at my best. And you know, worry and stress and all those things were definitely consuming me. Uh, but, but I'm at a point now where I realize you can either um, sit on the sidelines and kind of go woe is me and feel as though this will never change or you can do everything you can while you still have breath in you to uh, to make a difference i feel as though the younger generation has said enough is enough and i think that's where the accountability is coming into play uh, for me I think people have to have a level of courage. So when I see you say or do something that is wrong, I need to be able to say something to you. And I think until we start to hold one another accountable, things won't change. But again, I'm encouraged by young folks now um, seeing them because they won't stand for it. And you've made it clear and our institution has made it clear that we're not going to we're going to do something. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I wanted to talk about kind of two different prongs here. One is Metro Health as an institution, as mm -hmm. an employer, as a group of 8,000 employees. Mm -hmm. How are we doing Come up to this point? How have we been doing and how are we doing when it comes to race? I think um, to answer that question, we're doing okay, but we know we can do better. And th this renewed focus um, is really based on what we've stood for for over 180 years. 
from a patient perspective, will take care of you regardless of how sick you are, regardless of your ability to pay. So we know that based on those two things, we typically take care of the underserved and underrepresented. Um, so when we look at it from a, how are we doing in terms of racial inequity within this organization? I would say the answer is, it depends. Um, we know that um, bias exists across all people. I have biases, you have biases, we all do. Um, I think the key is, are you conscious of those biases and you basically hit the pause button before you move forward? Uh, and I think there, um, there are plenty of things going on right now um, across society, even within from a political perspective where people don't put, push the pause button and just say or do whatever um, with no fear of repercussions. And uh, it's gotten us to a point where a, a lot of folks are angry and just saying that we won't take it anymore. So when I look at this system, um, my goal is to really hear from all employees to understand um, what their experiences are. What their experiences are. Uh, I, I'm assuming that um, we're all starting at ground zero in terms of our education around racial inequity and injustice. And that's gonna require us to become comfortable with the uncomfortable because these are difficult conversations. And, but I, I truly believe that 99.9% uh, .9 of people don't wake up in the morning saying, what can I do to make your life miserable? <laughs> However, there may be things that I'm doing subconsciously that I don't even think of that make it difficult for you to be at your best. And, and ultimately, a truly inclusive culture uh, is one where you can bring your whole self to work. You don't have to be different. Um, you don't have to assimilate uh, into what everybody else is doing, per se. Um, you can bring your unique perspectives to the table and share those where they're valued, heard, and respected. So we wanna make sure that everybody has a seat at the table. And the only way we can do that is to understand what aspects of our system, what departments, what functions, what levels, um, are there people who don't feel as though their voices are heard? Um, Dr. King said that rioting is the language of the unheard. Um, I believe that disengagement is similar to that. Uh, and we wanna make sure that every employee across the system is engaged because that directly impacts the patient experience and that directly impacts our community. So what we're going to do is first off, we need to assess the current environment. So we need to create opportunities for employees to share how they feel, what's good, what's bad, um, and factor that into our overall plan. So assess the current environment, then build capabilities. So one example of capabilities is around education. So what is diversity? What's inclusion? What's equity? What's equality? What's the history of racial equality in this country? What does cultural competency mean? What does unconscious bias mean? And how does that manifest itself in things that we do? Because unconscious being the key, there are things that I might do or say that prevent you from being at your best. So how do we create a level of awareness around that? And uh, it, it's not something that's just done one time. 
we will have education and then ongoing reinforcement education. And also, after we've done that, we're gonna build in the accountabilities and the metrics to measure our performance. So not only are we opening up avenues, opening up vehicles for uh, our employees to share what's going on now, we wanna be able to go back to them after we've implemented some things to get their feedback. Ultimately, this is something that has to be built together versus something being done to someone or to a group. I know we're doing a series of videos. Mm -hmm. Uh, could you talk a little about that? Because I saw an early cut. It was just a 90-second video. It was one of the most powerful things I've ever seen. Yeah. Um, I, I believe that storytelling uh, is really the, the unlock uh, for people to understand truly what's going on right now in this country. And uh, in the past, I've used storytelling uh, as a recruiting tool. So, you know, why do you love working for Metro Health, for instance, and you share your story? I believe that everybody who works here identifies with our mission and our vision and our values. Um, so that being said, these, these stories, these videos um, that we're launching actually uh, this week um, are, are very powerful um, vignettes that show you the emotional impacts uh, of racial inequality and injustice. And uh, to your point, uh, I previewed the first one, and just in that short 90 seconds, um, I think you get it. My name is Dwight Lee. I work at NAVS, Environmental Services. I'm also a volunteer. I volunteer for the NOTA program, which is No One Dies Alone. worked eight hours here at Metro, and before I could get home, I got a call asking if I could sit with a patient because the family had been, been there for like 72 hours. They just wanted to go home and freshen up and come back. I um, got up to the floor, and I met the nurse at the station, and um, she was giving me some insight on the patient and the family. So when we got to the door, I got halfway in and one of the family members pulled the nurse aside. And um, she came back, she was so apologetic. She was walking me back to the elevator. She said, I'm so sorry about this. And she pretty much told me, but not just flat out that they didn't want you because of the color of your skin. And that just kind of like tore my heart apart. I mean, I'm giving up my time, I'm giving up, you know, just, wanting to make sure that this person doesn't die alone. But they just didn't want me. Um, one of the things that, that I've tried to do uh, in my career is to get people to understand the difference between being included and feeling excluded. And I don't care if you're black or white or Hispanic or, or what dimension of diversity or characteristic of diversity, every human being can connect on the point of having felt excluded. Um, perhaps it was in grade school and um, you, know, you were picking up teams to play kickball in gym class and you were the last kid that got picked. And maybe that was because you were the, the clumsy one, the awkward one, any of these labels that we might associate. Um, with, with being the last one chosen, you can remember what that felt like. You remember the pain associated with that. And I think what's very powerful is 
to multiply that times five, times 10, times 400 years. I think that's when you realize that there are people who you may work with on a daily basis who feel that way every single day. That's sad because there's no way they can bring their whole self to work. They can't be all in and it, impact, it impacts their ability to service their patients, service their peers, etc. That's really what our focus is going to be on, getting everybody to a point where they realize in some way, shape or form what it feels to be excluded and how difficult that is, how bad that is and how unproductive that is and unfair. That's the whole what we're doing internally. Mm-hmm. But healthcare um, for 400 years, black people, mm-hmm. significantly less healthy than white people. Yep. They get less care. Mm-hmm. They get lower quality care. Uh, so much of it is systemic. There's a, You have black patients' pain mm-hmm. is not taken as seriously as white patients. There's yeah. all these things that are just a mm-hmm. part of health care. How are we changing that? So, so part of our um, assessment, so I told you we're going to assess the current environment, um, that entails also assessing our patients. Um, when we look at black versus white versus other minority groups in terms of Medicaid, um, in terms of patient satisfaction, they're, they're all pretty equivalent. Blacks and whites and other minority groups have a similar viewpoint in terms of their satisfaction with care for Medicaid. We see gaps within the Medicare population versus Medicaid, and those gaps can be anywhere from 10 to 20% difference between how black patients who are Medicare patients perceive the quality of care versus others. Um, We also see some variation for those who have commercial insurance. So we're not sure why, but what we're gonna do now is really start digging in and understanding why. And that requires us to engage our patients uh, in a very different way, having very candid conversations and not hearing them, but listening to them. This podcast is called Prescription for Hope. Mm -hmm. What's your outlook and, and hope going forward? So I I mentioned I've got two sons and and four grandsons. I also have two daughters, so don't want to seem as though I'm uh, forgetting about them. But I think about my kids and my grandkids, and um, this is not something that's going to change overnight. Um, It's taken, you know, over 400 years to get us to where we are right now. Uh, But I do have hope. Um, My faith is very strong. And... You know, from a from a day to day perspective around hope, um, I, I look at the young people who are out there protesting. Um, I look at the fact that um, there's a lot of efforts around voter registration. So, how do we change things? I think it's through action, and I think if each one of us leads. Um, within our own communities, within our own circles of influence, um, we'll, we'll be fine. My, my goal is that my grandkids, the youngest who's 18 months old, won't have to worry about this.
this work is is very personal to me. Um, it is indeed a calling. I think some people are are called to preach. Some people are called to teach. Um, I think I'm kind of in the middle of that. Um, you know, creating an environment where um, all people um, can uh, walk into an organization, bring their whole selves to work, and be at their best. That's what I was kind of born to do. I think the way that we transform this organization, further transform this organization, because it's a great place to work. Um, but I'm competitive. I want us to be the best. So um, anybody that's out there that, that's talented, um, that believes in what we believe in, I want to attract them to the Metro Health System. What is that, metrohealth.org slash careers? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep, exactly. Yep. Thank you. So, no problem. No problem at all. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back soon with more episodes. In the meantime... Subscribe to Prescription for Hope in your podcast app. Leave us a five-star review and, above all, wear your mask. Don't worry, you look great. We'd also be extremely grateful if you'd consider joining us in our mission serving the community by making a donation to the Metro Health Foundation. Find out more by visiting metrohealth.org slash donate.